Hello, I'm Nick Baker, and this is the UK Wildlife Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Neil Phillips. And I'm Stephen Ling. Yes, that's not Victoria. <laughs> yeah, uh, she's, she's having a little break. So Steve has very kindly offered to step into the hosting duty. So thanks for that, Steve. You're very welcome. Podcast news. Downloads going well. We've passed 18,000 now. So thanks, everybody. Well, we might as well start with what we've seen. What have you seen recently, Steve? You're busy doing your PhD fieldwork on grass snakes, aren't you, at the moment? I am, yes. So I've been gallivanting around Norfolk. And because I'm studying the wetlands site, uh, you know, at the moment, there's lots of dragonflies around, lots of damselflies lots of wetland birds uh, and this weekend I even saw my first otters at the site so there's lots about uh, I don't always have the time to appreciate everything because I'm busy trying to get as much data as possible but you know it's nice to see. That sounds like a good lot of sightings there Steve. I just saw on social media you passed a milestone with the snakes you've been swabbing. I have so I have just passed 300 captures. Compared to last year there's a lot more snakes on the ground but obviously because of the the late start due to the whole coronavirus pandemic, my data is slightly truncated. So I'm trying to maximise captures in order to uh, maximise new encounters as well as re- uh, you know re-encounters so that you know I can do what's needed to be done with the data uh, and it makes sense and feeds into the previous year's worth of data. It may not work yet. We won't know until September comes. But until then, I'm just going to be out as much as I can, catching as many snakes as I can. And I'm pretty sure at this rate, because I caught so many in such a, a short amount of time, I must have been a hawk or, or something else in a previous life. <laughs> you, are, you are a herpetological whiz, whiz kid. Oh, God, where did that word come from? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that word is. Just so the listeners know, for those that haven't or have forgotten the frog episode, you're swabbing for snake fungal disease, not viral disease, as always, blooming quiet. <laughs> yeah, we're doing some research into that because we don't know very much about it at the moment, do we? Certainly in the UK. Well, we don't know. Uh, so, yeah, I am looking at population dynamics of grass snakes and the effects of disease. Despite the fact they're a very widespread species, we don't know very much about them. So, yeah, I'm trying to fill some of those gaps and also look at the disease aspect at the same time and see how they interplay. Now, one thing some listeners might not be aware of, let's see if I've got it the right way around. Grass snakes, Natrix Natrix, as they were, has been split. And now the British population, along with some in Europe, are now Natrix Helvetica. Helvetica, yes. So, yeah, there was some genetic work done in 2017. I believe the paper came out in August 2017 and has split the grass snakes west of the Rhine from the the rest of the populations in Europe. And... Mm -hmm. You know, it's something that isn't surprising given such a large geographical barrier. No. And there's also been splits with Iberian grass snakes. So everything south of the Pyrenees is a different species. And there's been some other stuff going on in Eastern Europe as well. So what we thought was one species is uh, what is known as a species complex, where they all morphologically look the same. But when you do some genetic investigation, they all turn out to be different species or, you know, a group of different species. Well, we're... Um, well. We'll stop there because I think Vic will get cross if we discuss snakes too much. <laughs> we have to wait till she comes back. And we'll get, obviously we're going to get you back for that episode, I think. We'll talk about snakes at some point in the future. In terms of what I've been seeing, last week I had a very quick run out one morning to a local reserve and tracked down some southern emerald damselflies, which are a bit of an Essex specialty. They, are, they do turn up in a few other places, but we've got the most sites at the moment. And they've come back to the same 
three sites for the last two years. So it looks like they might be colonising Essex permanently now. Uh, and of course, good old Southern Migrant Hawker as well. The main thing I got up to was sitting in my waders trying to film some minnows on my, <laughs> my waterproof case on my GH5. I've got some okay footage, I'll have to share it later on. But I'd also led a workshop on freshwater invertebrates, which was quite fun with all the COVID restrictions, trying to stay apart from each other while showing people freshwater life and stuff. So that was pretty cool. Uh, I think everyone seemed to enjoy it. And yeah, I think the highlight for me of that was I found four water stick insects, which brings me to a total of eight. So I doubled the amount of water stick insects I've ever seen, which for someone who pond dips as much as me is quite surprising, especially I live in Essex where they're quite common. So yeah, yeah that's quite nice. surprising. Yeah. So moving on to follow ups and feedback, we've had a few people send us some nice pictures. Uh, one I noticed recently was Lisa J. McLeish Photography on Twitter which is so LJ McLeish photo or one word had a nice Scotch Argus butterfly. I guess it's time to move on to the news. And as usual, there's lots of depressing stuff. <laughs> Unfortunately, in British wildlife, there's lots of depressing stuff all the time. I guess I'll start with the pollution spill in Wales on a tributary of the River Wye. Hundreds of fish have died and some pollution has been released into the river. Grayling, bullhead and even some crayfish. And it looks like it's white claw crayfish, which is really bad news because that's a declining species. And it's been investigated by natural resources wales from the way people are talking they're not much better than the environment agency in england so i won't hold my breath on anything really you know serious being done okay so some of you may have seen recently that a red list of uk mammals was released and unfortunately a quarter of the mammals found in the uk are under threat of extinction this comprehensive review has gone through all of the mammal species found here and assessed them in terms of their the threat to extinction and as expected, those species with the smallest habitat ranges and population sizes, such as the wildcat and the greater mousehead bat, are listed as critically endangered. The next step down for that endangered includes species such as the beaver, the red squirrel, the water vole, and the grey long-eared bat. The step below that, being vulnerable, includes the hedgehog, the hazel dormouse, the orkney vole, the serotine bat, and the barbastel bat. And then the step below that, near threatened, uh, includes mountain hare, harvest mouse, lesser white-toothed shrew, uh, and Lysler's bat. So yeah. something that I'm going to add on there quickly, because it follows into uh, what we're talking about today, is that at the moment, the Amphibian and Reptile Conservation Trust is doing a very similar thing for the amphibians and reptiles found in the UK. I'm not sure when it's going to be released, but hopefully the statistics won't be as dire as this. But, you know, as you said, Neil, when it comes to conservation in Britain, you know, it's uh, as an island and as a nation of people that are don't always care about wildlife. You know, you never know what's going to happen. And, you know, in terms of the threat here, obviously the threats of extinction have been going on for a long time. It's just that this is the first time that things have been quantified. We can try to put measures in place to turn these species around and, and, you know, measure progress through space and time. You hope something's going to be done about this, but it's sort of don't hold your breath time. I think it was, I read somewhere the hedgehog's actually been upgraded to vulnerable from near threatened because it's still declining. I mean, it's gone down to less than a million now and it was sort of 10 million, I think, at one point a few decades ago. So poor old hedgehog. Reasons for decline? There's so many. One of them's habitat loss. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the, the greatest causes of decline in a lot of these species is, you know, just fragmentation of habitat. You know, the populations are getting pushed into smaller and smaller packets and parcels of land that, you know, they can't disperse, meet other of their own kind and, and you know, and breed. That even if it's big enough for an animal to have a territory, you've got to have quite a lot of them to have a viable population, haven't you? And, and on the note of habitat destruction, the next story is, you may remember a few episodes ago, we mentioned 
the Cleve Hill Solar Park in North Kent, which is pretty much in the middle of a load of special protected areas and wildlife areas and nature reserves. And it's an area of grazing marsh right on the swale part of the Thames estuary, and which is very important for Brent geese grazing and they're putting a huge solar farm the biggest one in europe i believe from what they're saying and yes whale borough council have objected to it but the government have overruled them and they're pushing it through now in ireland they've had one of the biggest mass poisonings of bird of prey 23 buzzards are killed in the cork area and they've offered a 5,000 euro award shows that raptor persecution goes on in ireland as well as the uk which is very sad oh and down with the subject of raptor persecution hen harrier day is on the 8th of August, which is to try and you know celebrate this wonderful bird of prey, but also highlight the persecution it suffered on driven grouse moors. There's tons of satellite data that shows that all these satellite data just disappear. It's actually the subject of our next podcast. I'm not going to go into too much detail. But shall we talk about something a bit more positive and awesome? And that's Newt, the main topic for today's podcast, which is one reason we got you in. <laughs> Let's go crazy and talk about newts. Why not? Yeah. They are pretty cool. So let's start with the three native species, shall we? And so we've got the smooth newt, the palmate newt, and the great crested newt. I think the easiest way to start is by how to differentiate the, the two smaller newts from the great crested newt. And as you can probably guess by its name, the great crested newt is a reasonably sized newt. It's very large, one of the largest in Europe. And it's large, it's black in coloration, and its belly is orange with black spots. The males have a crest in the breeding season. Uh, hence how they get their name. Uh, The females don't, and the males use this crest as well as uh, a flash in a tail and some other uh, secondary sexual characteristics in order to display to to the mates and, you know, to to attract them. Kind of, you know, like how a a peacock's tail feather, you know, makes him look pretty and and beautiful to a female. That's what the crest is doing in in the newts, uh, just, you know, in a slightly different system. And that's the crest newts out of the way. The two smaller species, the smooth newt and the palmate newt, they look very similar. They're in the same genus. So there's no surprises there. Smooth newt, again, the males have a crest, but it's, it's smooth and wavy as opposed to jagged like the great crested newt. And, you know, they're a lot smaller, about half the size of a, of a great crested newt, up to 10 centimetres, a, a big smooth newt, whereas, you know, a great crested newt can grow to almost 20. Their underbelly, there's a white or cream border with an orange stripe down the middle and big black splodges for the males. And the females are, you know, a drab brown in colour with smaller spots on their belly. There's some confusion sometimes between palmate newt and smooth newt females because they look almost identical. But the best way to tell them apart is that palmate newts have a pale skin coloured chin. So if you flip them over, look at their chin, the palmate newt chin will be pale, whereas with a smooth newt, it will be white or cream or ivory and sometimes be speckled sometimes won't which is where some of the confusion sometimes comes in and the males hence their name the department you in the breeding season have these large black webbed feet and they have a filament end of their tail the tail is also uh, enlarged in, in the flattened dorsolateral plane and they lack a crest altogether so when it comes to differentiating them it's easy when you've got all three different types next to each other and in the hand to be able to see those minute differences. But the easiest way to tell them apart is in the breeding season, when they come onto land and go into their terrestrial phase, it can be a little bit trickier for the smaller newts. But again, the easiest way to tell them apart is to flip them over, look at their underbelly, their chin, and you can hopefully differentiate the two that way. 
Oh, that's a good summary there. So the Palmates, I always remember as Palmate Pink for the chin. That's that's the way I've, <laughs> I've remembered it, PP. Because it's usually kind of pinky colour, isn't it, on the chin? I know when you do torch surveys, when you're looking around, you look for the Great Crests are dead obvious because they're so much bigger and you get that flash of silver from the tail, like you mentioned. The male Palmates are easy because you can see the back feet and the male smooths because you can make out the crest. But when you get a female, you have to just tick it as small female, don't you? You can't really, unless you catch it, and look at it you can't be 100% which one of the two it is although sometimes you can be fairly sure because it's only palmates because it's quite an acidic pond or something but we'll get on to that in a second oh sure, yeah it is one of those things that when they're in the water they can look completely different to when they're on land or in the hand one thing i will mention here as well is that when you're torch surveying for great crested newts although they're you know they're jet black in coloration under a high magnification torchlight they do look slightly brown which mm. i guess is just the, the wavelength for light interacting with the different colour cells in their skin, which was, you know, very interesting the first time that I saw it, because, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, great creator new. And it wasn't black. And then, you know, as soon as I had it in the hand, I was like, ah, it is. And, you know, that's something that really tripped me up when I was first trying to differentiate between smooth newts and great crystal newts, because, you know, smooth newts can look like that, you know, a uh, dark coloration with, you know, the, the black splodges. Yeah, it's quite common. Is it? I mean, you must have come across it as well. People saying they've got great crested newts in their pond, but it's not. It's mouse smooth newts, which especially if you're not as nerdy as us two, <laughs> they do look like mini great crested newts. And if you haven't, you know, if you've never seen a great crested newt, you might, I'd easily forgive you for, for thinking it was one. But once you've seen a great crested newt, you know, because the heads are much wider. They're just bigger in every way, aren't they? I mean, definitely. Yeah, they're, they're a, a much more robust animal. And uh, as you know, I record uh, and verify a lot of records as well of various species in terms of reptiles and amphibians across Cambridgeshire and Norfolk. And yeah, most people sometimes have issues differentiating between smooth newts and great crested newts and you know I, I can't fault them if they haven't seen the two side by side or even seen a great crested newt before uh, because yeah you see a smooth newt it's got a crest it must be a great crested newt exactly i i dare say had i not been such a nerdy book nerd as a child i would have done the same and tried to turn my smooth newts into great crested but i had them in my pond at home so i was always familiar with them correct me if i'm wrong palmates tend to be more acidic soft water Whereas great crested and smooth are not quite so tolerant, although you obviously do get some overlap. And I have the first pond I ever surveyed with Essex River Reptile Group had all three species in, which is sort of basically being spoiled. <laughs> I don't think I've ever done that since. That was quite, I think it had a frog in it as well, which is pretty cool. So <laughs> four amphibians in one pond. And this pond, I'm not kidding, was in what, 40 metre by 40 metre square of land in the middle of a housing estate. Admittedly, this housing estate was built on old ancient woodland and there were still lots of big trees around and stuff like that. But I still thought that was quite impressive. That's a good start, put it that way. Yeah, um, it is a good start. But no, you are correct, yes. Palmate newts prefer acidic soils. So you usually find them in the uplands or moorland uh, and those sorts of places. And the smooth newts prefer more alkaline soils. So, you know, where you've got chalk or hard water areas where, you know, there's a, a source of alkaline water, you know, that's where you'll find the smooth newts. And then the great crested newts tend to, you know, flip between the two. But, you know, they are tolerant of both ends of the spectrum, but prefer it in the middle, which is why sometimes, you know, you can, as you say, you can find all three species in one pond. I know a very few myself, just because they tend to be quite small in size. And, you know, that just leads to higher concentrations of various pollutants, the, the chemicals that are turning that water into an acid or a base. Through the course of succession, some newts will move out, you know, others will move in, and you may lose the species just because the pond hasn't you know it hasn't been managed to enough to be able to allow all of the species to occur there 
one of the great things about joining an amphibian reptile group is you, is you learn things. And in Essex, palmate is actually the rarest species because we haven't got that much acidic soil. Basically, it's their woodland and the very tiny bits of heathland we've got, you tend to find them on more so than the other places. But in some woodlands, it's smooth newt dominated. So you find the odd palmate. And the theory goes because the smooth newts tend to lay slightly earlier, certainly in Essex. So they've got in the pond and laid. And by the time the palmate newt's eggs have hatched, there's lots of bigger smooth newt tadpoles. And as we'll probably discuss with that, tadpoles will try and eat anything. And so will the adults to some degree. And if they get in their mouth. The distribution nationally varies, obviously. there's If you go down to Cornwall, where it's obviously more acidic, you're more likely to find a palmate than a smooth. And great crested are absent in Cornwall. Shall we talk a little bit about what newts eat? Sure, no, let's go nuts. Uh, I think that, you know, it's worth mentioning that it depends on the life stage of the newt. You know, an adult's going to eat something that's completely different to the, the larvae. When they are in the larval form, they aren't afraid to be cannibalistic. So you will have brothers and sisters eating one another. But also, if you have great Christian newts in the pond where there are smooth or palmate newts, the great Christian newt larvae are two or three times larger than the smaller newt larvae. And so, you know, they'll eat the smoother palmate newt larvae, which is, you know, interesting when you're, you know, you're at pond dipping, you stick them all in a bucket and you come back five minutes later. And, uh, <laughs> you know, where have they gone? I'm, I'm sure you must have done something similar, uh, Neil, in the past. Well, I've done similar with diving beetle larva. <laughs> but yes, I've heard uh, a story of a great crested newt larva being brought in with some weed into a frog tadpole tank and the frog tadpoles slowly disappear. Well, I say slowly, quite quickly disappearing because they're pretty bad at eating them as well. But and then the adults are pretty bad at that, aren't they? You can... They are, yes. So, yeah, yeah the, the newts are voracious predators of tadpoles, both smooth and palmate newts and great crested newts. So, you know, I, I've sat there before whilst counting frogs spawning and then you know, at the corner where I noticed a number of smooth newts eating the, the freshly laid frog spawn, uh, you know, breaking through the jelly and then eating the, the nucleus. Uh, which is interesting. Uh, well, when the tadpoles are, are swimming around like, you know, mad, they are fair game to, you know, most of the things in the pond. So as well as all of the invertebrates, the other amphibians are some of their, their main predators, which is one of the reasons why amphibians play the numbers game. You know, they, they can lay thousands of eggs in one sitting. Only a couple of those need to reach adulthood for the population to be stable. But they are literally food for everything else in that pond and the, the surrounding ecosystem where those animals live, which is it's an interesting strategy. But it obviously works because, you know, they've been around for 300 million years and they're still going strong. Yeah. Dipping in ponds, I've seen all newt species being eaten by all sorts, the, all the classic predators, your great diving beetles, dragonfly nymphs, water boatmen, great water boatmen that'd be, rather than the lesser, which is tends to be more herbivorous. But I believe newt tadpoles are strictly carnivorous, whereas frog tadpoles and toad tadpoles start off as herbivorous or vegetarian, whatever you want to call it, uh, eating plants and algae and, was it, microbial film. I believe newt tadpoles come out and just start eating whatever they can get in their mouth, basically, don't they? So water <laughs> fleas to start with and that kind of thing, and then up to each other and bigger inverse. <laughs> oh, no, 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 sure, sure. And, you know, the easiest way to tell frog and toad tadpoles and newt tadpoles apart is... Newt tadpoles retain their gills. The mm. frog tadpoles and toad tadpoles only have them for a short period of time before they absorb, and then they go about, you know, the process of growing their legs and stuff. Whereas newt tadpoles keep them up until the point where they metamorphose. And also, this is something that I only found out in the past couple of years uh, when I was looking through you know, my own photos and saw the link, and then you know went down the, the rabbit hole of looking through the literature to to look into it. But frogs and toads, uh, with their tadpoles, they develop their rear legs first. But with newts and salamanders, they develop their front legs first, which I found very interesting. 
You mean you didn't know that as an eight-year-old? Hey, it's something I knew before, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> That's something I memorised from a very a childhood book, so I knew that one. But it's interesting, though, Steve, because I do find a lot of people don't know that. Even people like yourself, that it's, it's obviously I've read the the right book, I guess, <laughs> as growing up. But that was the distinction. So they keep the gills and front legs first, which is quite cool. Although it's very hard to find one with just the front legs. I think they develop them quite quickly, one after the other, because I've only once or twice seen them with just front legs. I've it's not the seen them since I've photographed them, been photographing them. I've never managed to find one. As we've got to say, you know, it's sort of about being in the right place at the right time. And, you know, I may have known it as an eight-year-old, but, you know, I've probably forgotten it. You know, it's been a long time. And lots of beers. <laughs> <laughs> While we're talking of tadpoles, you might as well go back a stage to the spawn, because most people will be familiar with frog spawn and probably toad spawn. But newts have a different method of, well, how they lay their eggs, haven't they? They do, yes. So instead of the the clumps or strings that you're familiar with for frogs and toads, newts will uh, lay their eggs individually and wrap them up in vegetation. So you know, if you if you're looking for for new eggs in a pond, you tend to look for leaves that have been folded over, and you know you can notice them because you know they're at a 180 degree angle, they're folded up over themselves, and you know it looks completely unnatural. But obviously, a newt's done it, so it is natural. And in there will be a single egg. The female has laid and the eggs being protected from predators and ultraviolet radiation, which could cause damage or deformity. And then she'll go on to the next one. And so, you know, it's one of the reasons why newts lay far fewer eggs than other amphibians, such as frogs and toads, because you know, they don't produce this continuous spawn. They have to lay each egg individually on a separate piece of vegetation. And you know, that will take them a couple of weeks to do that. And then they're off out the pond and, you know, the eggs are left to fend for themselves. If you find a newt that looks like he's dead uh, and he's just sitting there, it may be a female that's laying its egg. They go into this torpor-like state when they're laying. And the first time that I saw a female Great Coast Newt laying while surveying for them, she was, <laughs> she was floating on top of the pond and just laying there. I thought, oh, no, he's dead. And then I realised what she was doing. Uh, you know, she was investing all of her mental energy in laying this egg and wrapping it and holding it in place for the, the jelly to set. And then she swam off. But then for those three few moments, I thought I'd just come across a rather gravid Great Coast Newt that had only just expired right in front of my eyes. So I, I was relieved when she swam away. It's weird because what they're doing is that she's folding the leaf with her rear legs, so she probably can't even see what she's doing. She's just doing it by pure instinct. I mean, water mint's a top plant, isn't it? And I've seen a pond in the woodland that obviously has had a big population and probably a better suited pond until recently before we surveyed it, and dogs have been in there and destroyed all the aquatic vegetation. And there was one branch of willow had fallen into the pond, and because there was nowhere else for them to lay their eggs, all the newts had laid their eggs on this one branch of willow and the leaves were folded up sort of multiple times into tiny little things where there was multiple eggs on one leaf. So with them laying individual eggs, the female, whereas frogs and toads come in, wham, bam, lay their eggs and they're off again, probably within a week quite often. Newts, the female at least, is in there for a few weeks, I should imagine, is she? Yeah, they're, they're, they're there for a couple of months. So newts will start to return to ponds at the same time as frogs and toads do mid-February onwards, depending on the weather. The first thing that males do when they get to the pond, they'll arrive slightly earlier than females, is to get to the pond, potentially remove any predators, such as dragonfly larvae, and then start to develop their crest and their tail flash. And it depends on the species as to what those characteristics are, and then get ready for the females to arrive. And then when they do, they you know they start their courtship of fanning their tails, fanning their pheromones, and trying to pass their spermatophores to the females. So interestingly, as we know with frogs and toads, you know, the females lay the eggs and then the, the males fertilise those externally. 
with mutes, they have internal personalization, but the female chooses which male that it should accept so it's a spermatophore from, uptakes that into her cloaca and then fertilizes the eggs and then swims away and, you know, does the laying business that we've just discussed. You know, if you've spent any time watching newts in a pond, you can see the males trying to fan their, their, their tail with arching right round, you know, wafting pheromones towards her. And in most cases, females are completely uninterested and just swim away. And there's this bemused male there thinking what he's done wrong. It's hilarious to watch. You know, I guarantee you, if you, if you can catch it at the right time, you'll love it as well. Sometimes they do it in the day. You know, it most commonly happens at night when newts are most active anyway. Yeah, the first time I saw a great Christian newt was actually doing that. So talk about hitting the jackpot and, you know, getting it all at once. And there's a male sitting on a log. And of course, because he drops the spermatophore, doesn't he? If he knows the female's interested. And he's waving that towel to waft the pheromones. And he tries basically trying to draw her forward. So she walks over the top of the spermatophore and absorbs it into a cloaca, as you say. Which is weirdly similar to how scorpions do it as well. Which is a bit of weird convergent evolution now, I suppose. But going back to something you said earlier, you said the males remove dragonfly nymphs do you, do you mean they go around eating them to try and make the pond safer do we reckon they do that on purpose yes so depending on the species obviously if you're a great cursed newt then you can you know try to remove predators a lot more efficiently than if you're a smaller newt and obviously it depends on the size of the, the predatory larvae as well but there is some evidence to suggest that when those males first get back into the ponds ready to breed, that they remove the predatory larvae. Now, I'm not sure if it's instinctual or intentional, or if it's a sizable meal, so they're just going for it because they're hungry. But yeah, it's something that needs to be researched further, but, uh, you know, something that has been observed and noticed uh, and noted a few times with various different ponds, particularly following restoration, or where, you know, a new pond has been dug, and, you know, you have newts moving in, and, you know, these tend to, these experimental ponds tend to be monitored for a few years after they've been dug so they can you know, even work out how quickly wildlife colonizes them. And, yeah, one of the one of the things that usually happens is that the dragonfly larvae in the ponds sees a massive crash when the newts arrive compared to when the newts aren't there. Mm, massive crash in dragonfly population. Not sure I'm a fan of that. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you, you get more newts, though, so, you know, it's balanced yeah. out. Mm, maybe. <laughs> Maybe from your point of view, it's balanced out. No. <laughs> well, as I say, we're talking about balancing out. Imagine if a uh, a smaller palmate newt encounters a nearly fully grown emperor dragonfly nymph, it's going to go the other way. Of <laughs> course, the tables could easily be turned. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that happens quite a lot in nature, actually, doesn't it? Well, yeah, the smaller tadpoles get eaten by these insect larvae and then they turn on them when <laughs> they get a bit bigger. I mean, there's so much we could talk about on these guys. In terms of pond preference, you get the smaller newts, unsurprisingly, in the smaller ponds, and the great crested in larger ponds, which is why you don't tend to find them so much in gardens. Uh, but both species avoid fish, I believe, as well, don't they? Especially the great so, crested. Yes, a great, there's a very good reason for that. So when it comes to great crested newt, their tadpoles are, you know, very dumb, as it were. So they like to float around in the water column, you know, during the day. And obviously, whilst they're floating around, they're quite visible to fish. Uh, and so fish will pick them off one by one. With the smaller newt species, the smooth and pale mates, their tadpoles tend to hang around in the leaf litter at the bottom of the pond or, you know, in the vegetation. So they're well hidden and camouflaged from fish and, you know, potential predators that way. So it depends on the size of the pond, how many fish are in there, how many newts you've got, to whether or not, you know, they'll be successful. But like, uh, you know, like most things, you know, life finds a way. And sometimes, you know, you can have all three existing in a pond where there's fish just because there's enough areas for them to hide. But in general, if you've got fish in a pond, it's bad news for, for all amphibians, not just newts. 
Yeah, I mean, toads have some resistance to it with their poison skin, but even they don't do quite so well, apart from taking out the competition, I suppose, of the other amphibians. So there's a fourth species we haven't mentioned because it's not native, although they seem to, they're not common, but they pop up fairly commonly in certain areas. Uh, There's a couple of spots in Essex that seem to have a lot of them, and that's the alpine newt. So this is non-native. This is native to mainland Europe, but not to the UK. And I remember seeing it sold in pet shops and what were supposedly more reputable Acris shops as well. And I swear one of them actually advertised it as a pond newt. So this is the alpine newt. So can, what can you tell us about the alpine newt? You've already alluded to it, but yes, they were a popular pet for a very long time. And they still are at the moment. The males can be quite flashy, quite showy. You know, they're, they're very attractive. I too have the summer's pets, but you know, it wasn't out of choice. So at the, at the field site at the, the University of Kent, where we monitor populations of great crested newts and smooth and palmate, you know, all three of our native newt species, the occasional alpine turns up and because they're a non-native species you either have to euthanize the individual you know it's illegal to release them back into the wild so you have to be euthanized or you have to keep them in captivity and because i didn't have the heart to stick the new in the blender as it were you know they came home with me and have been living with me since but yes they do have a very widespread distribution in the uk and they're very easy to tell apart from our native species if you flip them over, the belly is bright orange. The males also tend to have a bluish hue to them. Females look just like the males, but without the tiny little crest that the males have with yellow and black stripes down it. And again, then the males only have that during the breeding season and then they, you know, go back into their terrestrial form. But yeah, they're a curious species in that we don't know their effects on native species apart from perhaps as a disease vector or through competition. So at the moment, there's a PhD student at the University of Plymouth who's looking into this. Uh, and hopefully, once she's finished her research, uh, we'll be able to, to find out more about what's going on. But yeah, I, I think the main reason why you know, they're, they're so widespread is that people had them as pets. They had them in the ponds or they had them in the houses. And you know, the, the owners got tired of them or they passed away. And so either they or their family, you know, released them into the garden, think that they are a native newt species, and unfortunately they're spread around, and in some areas, extremely common. So I know at one site in Cornwall, if you go bottle trapping, which is a, a standard method for monitoring newt populations, you can trap thousands of them over the space of a couple of weeks, because there's just so many, and they've displaced the local palmate newt. It's one of those things that, as much as I, you know, I'm happy to welcome another species into the UK herpetofauralist, because there's literally nothing, you know, we've only got three native newts, two frogs, two toads, three snakes and three lizards. We need to quantify the impacts first and try to figure out whether or not these should become a naturalised species or if we should work to eradicate them. And until Ali has finished her PhD and you know, fed into that whole chain of evidence and justification, we won't know what to do. If you find a newt that you suspect is an alpine newt, please record it to your local biological record centre because if we can track their spread and their distribution, you know, it will go a long way to helping in the future when, it, when we come to trying to make a decision as to what to do with them. Now, is there a case of them crossing with great crested newts? Because I know the Italian crested newt, which we'll come to in a second, does cross with a great crested newt. There are reports of alpine newts hybridising with great crested newts, but that was based on morphology alone. There wasn't any genetics done, so I'm not sure if they can, although they are they're similarly related, but, you know, they're, they're in different genre and so it's unlikely that they can or particularly seeing as when it comes to great christian newts one of the reasons why they're so endangered apart from all of the habitat loss and everything else is that half of their eggs won't hatch they have a genetic deformity 
or uh, anomaly, I should say, in that if they have the same copy of chromosome one, uh, so a homomorphism, then that egg will not develop. And unfortunately, they only have two copies of the two versions of, of chromosome one. And so that means that when it comes to the odds of mixing genes and everything else up, that 50% of those eggs will not be viable. So, you know, if a female lays 400 eggs, only two of those are going to hatch. A very small fraction of those are going to lead to metamorphs that are then going to lead to adults, etc. So we'll quickly mention the Italian crested newt. It's pretty much the same as a great crested newt. It just has slightly different patterns. It's more of a, what you call it, a geographic species, isn't it? It's just where they've been subdivided, although it is a distinct species. There's not many records of them, is there? There's not, no, but I, I think the issue is is that they're extremely hard to tell apart from great crested newts, and unless you know what you're looking for, you're not going to be able to discern them unless you have them in the hand. So there are cases of people recording alpine newts as smooth newts and yeah so it could be a very similar thing that there could be a lot of italian crested newts out there but we just don't know because morphologically they look very similar to great crested newts uh, you need a, a trained eye and the expertise to be able to tell them apart if i had two side by side i'd probably struggle uh, you know let alone anybody else so it's one of those things that it may be more widespread than we think they are, but at this moment in time, it's impossible to tell. We've got a question from Annie Sutcliffe, who's at Annie Sutcliffe. She's asked, how far do newts range and what's the best cover to provide for them in the garden when out of the pond? That's a good question. No, it is. It's one of those things, it's a misconception that newts, you know, live in ponds all year round. They're only there to breed. And then just like frogs and toads, they're out of dodge until the next year. So when it comes to the habitat cover, you know, as long as you've got long grass and other vegetation where, where the newts can rummage around in, find lots of invertebrates to eat, but also, you know, seek refuge from the sun, then you'll be fine. In terms of home ranges and the distance they will walk, it depends on the species. So in Great Christian Newts, they've been recorded as moving up to one and a half kilometres, which for a newt that's, you know, 15, 20 centimetres long and not exactly physiologically you know, adapted for moving large distances, that's quite insane. But, you know, they often tend to move 500 metres to a kilometre. And you can see that when, when you look at metapopulation dynamics of certain ponds. So, yeah, it varies on the species. And also, you know, what kind of barriers are in the way? You know, are we talking about walled gardens? Or, you know, is there a nice open area for them to go and explore? All of these things are factors that influence how far newts will go to find places to feed, places to breed and places to, to overwinter as well, which is another important habitat for them coming in the winter, is where they're going to bed down and hibernate. So another thing you could do, isn't it, for this overwintering, is build a hibernaculum, as it's known, which is the place they hibernate in. And it's quite simple, really. If you just pile up a load of rocks and logs on its own, it will be all right. But if you can put a bit of soil or turf over the top, so basically you want to make a mound, I don't know, at least 50 centimetres across with a load of crevices underneath. You can put a rockery on top of it if you want. You can get quite inventive with it. I've seen lots of nice ideas. You can put that right by the pond or in the corner of your garden. As long as they've got cover to get to that where it is, they'll probably use that. And frogs and toads. And if you're lucky enough to have reptiles, will use it as well. It's a good thing to put in and probably some invertebrates to use it too, which is always good. So yeah, hopefully that answers your question. So basically lots of vegetation where they can find invertebrate prey, including worms and beetles and that kind of stuff. And somewhere for them to hibernate and just have cover in the day. I suppose it had been not necessarily damp, is it steve but you know not dry before we get way of putting it i guess they need somewhere during the day you know, so, of course uh, yeah as long as the grass isn't you know cut all the way to the ground 
Uh, and, you know, and when it comes to the dew point, they use a little bit moist and they can hide in there. You should be OK. I'm not saying you know, that you've got to go completely wild because you, you can still have the benefits if it's well managed without it being a completely devoid monoculture or completely wild or really grass 10 metres tall. It's just finding the right balance for you, for the wildlife and for the purpose that you want to get undergo that management. One topic I do want to cover is neoteny. So neoteny is where an animal stays in its larval form or as a child but can still breed uh, most of the time in nature and this is quite common with oxalotls in fact i think it's the standard state for oxalotls now oxalotls are a type of salamander that's native to the area that is now mexico city so they're almost extinct in the world sadly uh, but you might have seen them in pet shops as peter pan lizards and stuff like that and yeah they stay as a tadpole with gills can breed and just are fully aquatic in the uk this doesn't usually happen with certainly our native species it has been known in alpine newts a bit more often i believe is that correct steve it is, um, yeah. But Steve was staying at a place last year that had an abandoned swimming pool where the newts that were breeding in it could not escape. Well, the tadpoles certainly couldn't. And they ended up becoming neotenous. So they are well, nearly the length of full-grown adult newts, but they kept their gills and were sort of halfway between adult and larval forming shape the head, wasn't it? It was. It's a curious thing when it comes to neoteny in our newts and as you said you know I, I think there was two reasons why one is the chemistry of the water and two is the fact that they couldn't get out uh, mm. you know as someone that keeps newts and there's anybody who's kept newts can attest when it comes to metamorphosed individuals they can climb sheer glass walls but obviously these guys despite the fact they had that ability it wasn't part of their mental thinking because they didn't have the ability to leave the water because they still had their gills if they had metamorphosed then perhaps they could have climbed out. Yeah, it was very interesting. Uh, and obviously, you came along, we photographed some uh, together, which was pretty cool. And yeah, and then you took a couple home for photography purposes, and they, they magically metamorphosed within a very short period of time. Yeah, I need to find the notes on how long that was. But So I collected two, and then they started to metamorphose quite quickly. And we theorised, didn't we? We think it was, probably, like we say, changing water chemistry. It might also have been the fact that although I put them in a deep tank, obviously... The swimming pool was, what, six foot deep? Sorry, three foot deep at the shallowest end, wasn't it? And the aquarium I put them in was only a foot deep. And you suggested it might be that they sensed the change in depth or that the fact they couldn't go deeper. And in their instincts or their, you know, the way they sensed the world, that was the pond was dropping depth because it was drying out. So that triggered a metamorphosis. Yeah, it's quite interesting because I've got pictures of them sort of where the gills have shrunk and the head has gone more adult-like. I, I thought I was imagining it to start with. I thought, I swear their gills are bigger than that. And then, uh, yeah, we looked at the photos and compared them and we could quite clearly see they shrunk. They're amazing things to see, aren't they? Because they were still pretty much the colour of tadpoles as well, weren't they? It was a very weird thing to see. Whereas the alpine it, pictures I've seen, they seem to have the adult coloration still, just still have their gills. It depends on the species and it varies as well. I think one of the reasons why they were quite light coloured as well is the pond itself, you know, it was quite light. Despite the fact that, you know, it was, the water was very green. You know, there wasn't any need for any camouflage. So, yeah, it, it's just one of those things. And we knew they were breeding because we found gravid females in that state so there must have been males around to yeah to fertilize them to obviously keep the population going because i was surveying the newts on an on a evening basis over the course of a month and a half and i only saw a couple of fully metamorphosed adults in the pond and there have been very few metamorphosed juveniles found around the area when we were moving plant pots and paving slabs and stuff and he's trying to generally clean the area up everything was happening in the 
I call it a pond the disused pool so yeah it's very interesting and it's something that you know I'd like to look into further when possible when I'm not spending every waking hour chasing grass snakes uh, yeah it's certainly something that needs looking into because absolutely fascinating topic yeah so that's a, a nice little extra bit on newts we could probably talk about them for hours but I think we'll start to finish up there. But let's let's quickly discuss some of the threats to them. We've mentioned sort of habitats already uh, with an, the news story on mammals, but habitat loss and the lack of decent ponds or ponds with fish introduced or invasive plants, which has destroyed them or pollution or just them being filled in is bad news. But there's there's other threats as well, isn't there? There are other threats, yes. Uh, for one, the Tories. Uh... <laughs> yeah, we try to stay apolitical, but yes, we, we just... We, uh, Covered Boris's blaming the newts. I think was it last episode, episode four last. Their policies have not been sympathetic. They're protected by UK legislation, so yeah. we should probably talk about their protection as well. So, all of our native amphibian species are protected by a sale. Actually, can't you know legally trade them? And when it comes to great crested newts, it's illegal to disturb them or survey for them without the appropriate license from Natural Kingdom. So if you think there are great newts in the pond, do your best to make sure that you have someone with you that's licensed. If you just stumble across them in your garden pond, make sure they are reported so that that population is known about. You know, the people who come to buy your house after you sell it may not like you. When it comes to it, garden ponds in some areas may be the last remaining refuge for some of these species. So, you know, that they can be vital for the longevity. But yes, I, I think that the issue that I say tourism in general, development is the issue. People trying to build houses, trying to build theme parks, trying to build car parks, bakers, whatever it is, you're developing a parcel of land for. And newts are often translocated off of those sites, put into receptor sites, and there's no or very little follow-up monitoring done to figure out whether or not those translocations were successful in the first place. And so we've just repeated this behavior for the past 20, 30 years, and nobody knows whether or not any of those translocations have been successful. So a lot of those newts are probably going to die in the process, A, trying to return home, but B, wandering around in an environment they don't know and trying to you know, get their bearings and find somewhere to forage and breed and whatever else. Uh, which is tragic when you think about it. Next time you do find an animal such as a new in any garden pond, please have sympathy on them. They have as much right to be there uh, as you do. And obviously, if you've got a pond, it's a perfect breeding habitat. One thing we should mention, if you find one outside of spring, sort of on your patio or something like that, put it back in a damp area rather than your pond, because although they can swim in their terrestrial form, they won't do so good <laughs> in the pond when they haven't got their full swimming towel and stuff. So yeah, just let them forage. And uh, hey, here's a debate. We debated this with um, Nick Baker as well. I call when they emerge an eft. I Here is the official view, but some people debate it and say, you know, the tadpoles are efts as well. well. What's your view on this, Steve? What is an eft? An eft is a post-metamorphic juvenile newt. So one that has left the pond and it is that year's young the most concise way i can put it that's my understanding of it but i've been uh, shall we say corrected in inverted commas a few times and so especially the f do not put them back in the water whatever you do because they really do struggle in the water don't they yeah they, they, I, think, I think they can drown can't they if they can't get out yeah, they can, yeah. I, was, I was about to, to make this point and the same with common frog and common toad metamorphs that have just left the pond the reason they're leaving the pond is A, to disperse, but B, because that's not the habitat that they're, they're built for at that moment in time. If you find it this time of year, amphibians such as newts in your garden, make sure there's somewhere that's dark and damp 
don't throw him back in the pond because you probably do more harm than good. Okay, well, that is a good place to start to wrap up because I'm not going to mention the threat of cats. Although one thing that is a problem to them is salt. So if you put salt down on your drive and they have found great critters in loot populations have been wiped out by salt running off of roads as well. There's various measures coming in. They've started putting, because newts like toads and frogs, do get caught on the roads and down drains. And there's, did Cambridgeshire Arg do a load of these? Didn't they ladders? Was that you guys? Did a load yeah, of that, yes. yeah, we put, some, we put some, some ladders that are manufactured by the British Herbological Society in some drains. Unfortunately, due to the whole coronavirus pandemic, we haven't been able to find out how successful they've been this year. But uh, over the past couple of years, they've really helped to reduce the number of toads and other amphibians caught in drains. The other thing as well is that you're not just amphibians that are caught in drains, but small mammals as well. You know, when you've got a gully pot at the side of a road, it's essentially a pitfall traps. So anything that falls in can't escape unless they can fly. Uh, so, you know, those ladders allow everything to get out from newts to toads to, to mice to shrews, etc. There are methods of helping amphibians such as newts in an urban environment. New solutions are being devised all the time and, and trialled. So hopefully going forward, we'll see a lot of these implemented. And I hope so that we'll see them in you know particularly new builds where you're trying to be as environmentally conscious as possible but they're still yet to be seen but i can keep crossing my fingers and hope the ladders i should explain are basically near vertical slopes shallowing off that go down the sort of free foot the drain whatever deep it is but they've got a lot of grip on them so that these animals can climb up them and get out the drain and not starve to death or get covered in horrible chemicals or whatever or else it's going to kill them down there it's all good that sort of stuff we just need more of it really I think we'll wrap it up there. Well, all I can say is thanks for stepping up and taking the hosting duties, Steve. You're very welcome. And sort of guests at the same time, expert guests. So (laughs) double whammy there. So thanks for that. Where can people find you on the Twitters and Facebooks? So on Twitters, my handle is at Steve Overlane. So my surname is A-L-L-A-I-N. And if you go to Facebook, you can find my page, Stephen J.R. Elaine, and my Instagram is the same as Twitter, at uh, Steve Elaine. Come follow me, come find out what I'm up to, and if you've got any questions or queries about reptiles and amphibians, their conservation, how to look after them, how to attract them to your gardens, etc., shoot me a message, and I'll do my best to answer. Steve's got loads of papers in various journals now so uh, do look out for them all sorts of herpetological topics so yeah i guess it's just time for me to sign off so you can find the uk wildlife podcast on twitter at uk wildlife pod on facebook at uk wildlife podcast and on instagram at uk wildlife podcast all one word and you can find me at uk underscore wildlife on twitter and podman uk on twitter and uk wildlife and Pomman UK on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Neil underscore UK underscore wildlife. So you can find me separately as well, but you can find me for the UK wildlife podcast anyway. Vic should be back on the next episode, all being well. And we have a very special guest, not to downplay you, Steve, of course, you have been a very special guest as well. We have Olo Williams, as in the Springwatch presenter, coming on and we'll be discussing our arguably first controversial topic, which is hen harriers and raptor persecution on driven grouse moors and elsewhere because it's hen harrier day on the 8th as i mentioned earlier but we'll be recording on the 12th i'll try and get out as soon as possible after that but that should be a good episode so i hope to hear from you then but for me and steve all we've got to say is goodbye and thanks for listening take care everybody bye bye